Thank you, Father, for your amazing grace. Thank you for the great love and kindness that you showed us in sending your only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to hang on that old rugged cross and become sin for us and to solve a problem that we could not solve in our own strength. And thank you, Father, for the newness of life that our salvation brings. And thank you for how the scales fall off our eyes and our Bibles have meaning and we have hope and life and purpose. We look forward to heaven, Father, and being in your presence and worshiping. It's beyond even our imagination. Thank you for the glimpses you give us in our Bibles of that reality. But in the meantime, help us to be faithful to you. Help us to receive with a willing heart your word. Help us to walk in the truth and to be disciplined unto godliness and to care about right from wrong. And thank you, Father, for the honesty and the transparency of your word and how you do not hide from us the flaws of your servants and how those who have gone before us have laid an example. And I thank you, Lord, for this series and sequence of messages out of Genesis, this amazing book of beginnings. And thank you for Abram and Sarai. But Father, thank you that this morning you're a God of grace and a God of second chances. Help us to learn, help us to apply, help us to live the truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray, anticipating that you will speak to us, encourage us, and change us through your word this morning. Amen. I was jerked awake from a a dozing midnight nap, uncomfortably crunched in my airplane seat as we had been delayed on the runway in the Minneapolis airport. And what had jerked me awake was a spray of liquid going across the window right outside my face. And my heart jumped into my throat and I thought, oh no. I knew what they were doing. We had been delayed because of weather and now they had a big tanker truck with a hose and they were spraying down our airplane so that when they did give us the green light to go, we wouldn't ice over and fall from the sky. The conditions were icy that night. I'll tell you what, I find in my life that there's nothing like being on an airplane ready to leave the planet to get me right with God. And then when they're spraying us down for icing, I really get right with God. And a couple of courses of Lord, I'm coming home, flash through my mind and nearer my God to thee. But you know, when you're the pilot and the conditions are difficult... Someone has to make a decision, we're going now. Or you have to say, scrap it, we're not going. I want you to have in your mind's eye icing conditions as we turn to Genesis chapter 16 this morning and you're the pilot of your life, not an airplane, and how often in life's experience and in the journey of our lives, we find ourselves in pivotal moments where we have to make decisions and sometimes it's kind of like the icing moment if we decide to go and it turns out to be a bad decision it will be forever a life-changing moment 
In fact, it can even have disastrous results. And like the pilot of a a jumbo jet that falls from the sky because of his poor decision-making, it doesn't just impact your life negatively, but it can have disastrous results upon the lives of countless other people. And this morning, as we read Genesis chapter 16 in its entirety, and then we try to draw some truths from the first part of the chapter at least, I want you to realize how Abram makes a decision that he should have never made. And not only did it have disastrous results and impact upon his life, but even to this day it has had disastrous impact upon the lives of countless people. Because of this moment that we're going to read about, literally tens of thousands, if not millions of people through the course of history have been brutally slaughtered. They have literally lost their lives. There has been rapes and pillaging. There has been incredible political chaos. There have been coups. There have been assassinations because of a moment in his tent one day when Abram made a choice that was outside of the will and the plan of God for his life. Will you stand with me, please? I'm using the New International Version. Follow along in your copy of God's Word. Stand with me as we read God's Word. It's quite a story, and I think you'll have no trouble following it. We are coming out of chapter 15, and we know that in chapter 15, Abram has just had an incredibly uh, wonderful worship experience And he's been promised by God and covenanted covenanted to him by God in a unilateral, God-sided covenant only that I will give you a land and I will give you a people. Now we're going to find what happens ten years later. Genesis chapter 16, beginning with verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. And so after Abram had been living in in Canaan ten years... Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. And when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. And then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. And your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. And then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. And the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. And it was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. And then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child and you will have a son and you shall name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard of your your misery. 
He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. And she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And that is why the well was called Bir Laharoi. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. And so Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. May the Lord bless the reading of the word this morning and the application of it to our lives. You may be seated. This morning, I want you to see that there are six dynamics at least to this disastrous occasion in the life-defining moment of Abram, his wife Sarai, his wife of promise, and then his second wife, his fleshly wife, his wife that represents a lack of faith and the results of that whole relationship. I want you to see the breakdown in Abram's thinking this morning and as we make application to our own lives. Oh, I think you'll see yourselves here. I know the flesh is weak, isn't it? Even though the spirit is willing. And we want to love God with all our hearts, don't we? We want to take Him in faith believing. We want to walk in obedience. But how easily we are turned away through our own logic, through our own fleshly desires, through man's wisdom, through the influence of the culture upon us. Well, let's break down this passage. And I want you to see, as I said, uh, in Abram's formula for disastrous spiritual impact upon his life and the lives of others, at least six dynamics that took place. The first thing I want you to see is that we find as we enter chapter 16 in this important passage, coming out of chapter 15 as I reference, where God has declared and covenanted with Abraham, Abram at this point, his name has not been changed to Abraham yet, it will be soon. But God has declared, I will give you a land. He's defined the borders of that land. And then when Abram asks him, how is this going to be? And how are you going to populate this land through me? Because Abram already is an old man beyond childbearing years with his wife, Sarai. And God says, not only will I give you a land, but I will give you a people. And do you remember that Abram looked at God and he said, maybe it's through my servant Eleazar that you will have children and I can adopt Eleazar as my official son, and then he can have children. And, that, and God interrupts him and says, No, Abram, it will be from your own body. It will be your son. Puts Abram to sleep. Read the end of chapter 15, and it's that strange, bizarre night that Abram experiences where he cuts the animals in half. And, and this Mesopotamian uh, traditional contractual agreement is made, only it's unilateral, and both parties do not walk through the cut animals. Only God, in the form of fire, walks through, declaring that if I don't keep my word, may it be to me as it is to these animals that were slaughtered. And Abram comes out of this sleep, and nothing happens. You ever been on a spiritual high point in your life? You ever made decisions to follow after God? You ever been at camp or a retreat? You ever had the stirring of the Holy Spirit in your life and you know that from then on everything's going to be different and then you go home and nothing changed. You still wake up to the same wallpaper. 
You still eat the same cereal. You still go to the same job. You still drive the same car. And then you wonder, Lord, it seems so real. What's happening in my life? And we know from our details of our account that 10 years goes by and no child. And already 10 years before, Abram was suggesting that God needed some assistance, that I'm too old to have a child. And now his wife, Sarai, In a very emotional moment, in number one, we find a moment of emotional instability, I call it. Emotional instability. Let's take a look and let's let's see if we can discern what's happening here. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children, so go sleep with my maidservant. I've suggested that This horrible decision-making process in Abram's life is couched, number one, in emotional instability because I think that this is, from our point of view, just a bizarre thought. How would a wife suggest to her husband that that he take another woman? That is something we'll see in a moment that was couched in the culture of that day. But I think that Sarai is suffering from emotional meltdown. Sarai realizes what? The the biological clock is ticking, Abram. In fact, it has done ticked its last tick. Abram, look at me. Look at you. Perhaps you can still muster it, but I cannot. Abram, we've got issues. And Abram, the Lord has kept us from this. He made a promise and now he's just not coming through. I have to believe that that Sarai is just overwhelmed by the disappointment of the circumstances in her life. And it's very emotional to her. And I see this beginning of chapter 16 as a moment of emotional instability, particularly on the part of Sarai. You see, this stigma of childlessness is huge. This is something else that we don't relate to in our culture. In fact, there is a segment of our culture and a segment of our society that that would say, why would you have children? What is wrong with you? And especially if you have more than one of each. And when people walk in with five, six, seven, eight kids, it's like, don't you get how it works? But you see, it's God's plan to have a family and it's God's plan to have children. And in our culture, we cannot relate to the negative stigma of what it meant to be barren, what it meant to not have children. And for Sarai, this was something that had bothered her all of her life. And now, for 10 years, she had been waiting for something to happen because God had promised that through her husband, they would have children, and out of those children would come a great nation, and God was going to bless them. It would take four generations, he had explained, before they would come back to this land And they waited, and they waited, and they waited. And finally, Sarai says, ten years is long enough. You see, if we had time, we could look in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Do you remember that story of Samuel's precious mother, Hannah, and how she went to the temple, and she had no children? And she wanted children so desperately that she went to the temple one day and in her pleading and in her crying and in her emotion, Eli the priest walks out there and he says, woman, you've been drinking in the middle of the day. Are you drunk? That's how distressed she is. See, that's what it meant to a woman in this Eastern culture, in this mindset. 
Her identity was all about her children. Her worth, her value was all about her children and there's no children. And so God, what in the world is going on? And Sarai is emotionally unstable at this point, I'd suggest. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, Proverbs says. Isn't it true? Do you know what it is to have that hope? Do you know what it is to have that vision for your life? To know what it is to just know this is what God's going to do and then it's not happening and it's not happening and the heart becomes sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Number one, we move from emotional instability to number two, to spiritual insecurity. Spiritual insecurity. Have you ever noticed how related our emotional framework and our spiritual framework are? How connected. And when we are weak emotionally, it often leads to spiritual instability. Have you noticed that? And so look what happens in verse 2. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Now why don't you go do plan B? Spiritual insecurity. Clearly a lack of confidence in the provision and in the promise of God at this point. She had no more strength emotionally. And it transfers over to spiritual doubt, doesn't it? We move from emotional instability to spiritual insecurity. Now enters a huge case of cultural conformity. Number three, cultural conformity. Look what we have. This is a textbook case. I have been meditating this week upon the difference between conviction and cultural conformity. So often we do things because of our culture, and we never give a thought about whether or not it really is a biblical way to think. In this culture, clearly, even secular historians and anthropologists tell us that in this Mesopotamian culture, and coming up even as far back as Ur, where Abram, remember, remember Abram came out of Ur many years before, and grew up there worshiping the planets and the stars, that even in that culture, way back then, and it continued, that it was common for men to enter into polygamous marriage. Where did that come from? We've been studying the book of Genesis, and I know it's been a while. I think it was Dave the other day told me, Pastor, we've been in Genesis so long, I can't remember what we already studied. So, Dave, we're going to start Genesis over as soon as we finish it. All right? That's not true. He's right. I can't remember what I preached even. And, uh, but do you remember the messages on marriage from Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3? Do you remember that God established a pattern, didn't he? And he established a pattern that it would be one man and one woman for life. He even reiterated that, remember, on our cultural issues series that go back to Genesis from Matthew, that when Jesus was confronted on the issue of divorce, what did he do? He quoted Genesis. He said, how is it from the beginning? How is it from the beginning? The pattern was set, one man, one woman. And you know what happened? And I guarantee you this was a man's idea. I think I need a wife who can cook, or who can look, or whatever, better. Right? And somewhere along the line, some guy says, Honey, let me introduce you to wife B. And I don't know, you know, maybe this was out in the country somewhere, he was still dragging cavemen, living in a cave, dragging her around by her hair or something. But this is not God's plan. Don't you know that? Don't you know that 
There is nothing in the capacity of a wife that is designed for her to accept or tolerate her husband being with another woman. You know that, don't you? There is nothing, there is no capacity for that. We're not wired that way. But the culture says it's fine. You know, and even though we don't have the pattern in Scripture, we do have multiple examples in Scripture. And one of the questions I will ask God is, how come you didn't give 11th commandment that said, thou shalt have only one wife? Because isn't it interesting that there is no declarative proclamation condemning polygamy in Scripture? There's not. And we do have multiple models of even God's people entering into multiple marriages. David did it. What did I tell you this week, Janet, when I was looking at it? He had seven wives. King David had seven different wives. Had over 19 sons alone, plus with concubines besides that. What is that all about? I'll tell you what it's all about. It's about being just like the rest of the world around me. It's about something that becomes so culturally acceptable that even the church and even God's people become benign to it. And so Sarai, in her planning, looks around and said, you know, my body can't produce it. And for some reason, and this is why I think she was under emotional duress and, and on a spiritual downgrade, and that the, the time frame of 10 years passing without God moving or evidently speaking during this time had gotten her so empty to the point that she just wanted to see what God would do. And so she begins to scheme this idea. And we enter into this polygamous relationship. And you'll notice that um, it didn't take Abram long to agree, did it? Well, honey, I uh, never was waiting for you to suggest that. (laughs) And I think that Hagar was much younger than Sarai. Evidently, she was a servant girl that they had picked up in Egypt. Interesting how that was out of the will of God, wasn't it? How a decision many years before brought a person into their life that many years later would negatively impact their home front. Interesting, isn't it? These skeletons in the closet. But what we see in Abram number four is we see marital passivity, don't we? We see marital passivity. Let's read it again. The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. That's what the culture does. That's what other people without children do. But other people hadn't been given the promise. And Sarai, I think, is rationalizing as well. God promised that through you we would have children. He didn't say anything about me. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. There's no evidence of stopping to think. There's no evidence of a prayer life. There's no evidence of saying, and by faith, Abram took Hagar to be his second wife. It just says, Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai took his Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He at least tidied it up a little bit, didn't he? And he entered into an illegal, official marriage arrangement with Hagar. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. Marital passivity. Now, we've seen this somewhere else in Scripture, haven't we? Let's see. In Genesis. um, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, there's a man and a woman, a marriage relationship. Uh, Adam and his wife Eve, that's it, it's coming to me now. 
And we have direct instruction and promise from God, don't we? And don't we have, what did Abram listen to his wife Sarai? Adam listened to his wife Eve. Adam was silent and passive. Abram is silent and passive. Sure, honey, anything you say. Sarai took Hagar and gave her to her husband Abram. Eve picks the forbidden fruit and gives it to her husband Adam. Got to get my A's straight here. Abram willingly and knowingly participates in something he knows is not of God. He knows it. I know he knows it, even though the text doesn't say it. I just know. Just like we know Adam did what? He knowingly and willingly participated in that which was outside of the perimeters of God's will. And it ended up in disaster. Incredible disaster. Great, irreversible consequences. uh, An incredible short-circuiting of God's plan of blessing for their lives. Well, we move from this, this... table set with emotional instability that that developed into a meal of spiritual insecurity. We now look around at the cultural conformity and we find that there's also seasoned in the whole thing this marital passivity, an unwillingness of the man to stand up to his wife and say no. And in fact, he's very complicit in it. I think that in his flesh, this idea greatly appeals to him, of course. Fifthly, we move into what I call sexual infidelity. Verses 4 and 5, we've already read them. Abram does this act of impropriety. It is not God's plan. It is not the pattern that God established. It is not the promise that God gave to them. And as I've already referenced, there is no wife who is designed with a capacity to deal with this process. And so we see that the marital passivity, which moved into sexual infidelity, now results into relational immaturity that is off the charts. Notice the responses of the different parties now. He slept with Hagar and she conceived, verse 4, second part, and when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. First of all, we see in Hagar the living out in full color of the truth of Agar in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 21 to 23, where it says, Under three things the earth trembles. Under four it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes king, a fool when he is filled with food, an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. One of the wisest men who ever lived said, The world can't hold up under this dynamic. And so as soon as Hagar finds out she's pregnant, she's like, Look at me. She's married to the man of promise. She's now bearing his child. And she despises her mistress. Notice the relational immaturity from servant to mistress. She had nothing to do with it. It was only because of her mistress that she was able to be blessed and have a child. She evidently was in a circumstance where she wasn't going to be married. Not only does she get to get married, she gets to get married to the boss. And now she's part of the promise ultimately. 
But Sarai, Sarai, look what happens. And when she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. And then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for this. <laughs> Wait a minute, woman. I didn't, well, if I thought of it, I didn't say it. <laughs> Technically, she's right, isn't she? Technically, if there were no Abram, there would be no Ishmael. You talk about relational immaturity between Sarah and her husband Abram. You now have a three-cornered relationship that is just, just crazy. A servant despising her mistress. A wife despising her husband for doing what she said to do anyway. And now we have a man who continually remains passive in his leadership role. And instead of dealing with the problem, because at this point he says what? I don't know what to do. I'm in a fix now. I'm in a fix now. Because he wants to have the child. He cares about the son. We even know later that he loves Ishmael. In chapter 21, Sarai's anger is still burning and she's going to tell Abram, you better get that boy and that woman and get her out of here. 13 years later from now, it's still going to be festering. And Abram says, I don't want her to leave. I don't want him to leave. And Sarai says, you better get him out of here. That boy's abusing your son, Isaac. I mean, it is just, you cannot, you cannot overstate the mess that Abram is in right now. And he says, I guess Sarai at the end of verse 5, may the Lord judge between you and me. It's a little bit like, She's admitting a little bit, I've got something to do with this whole thing, but the Lord knows you're more guilty than I am. And then verse 6, your servant is in your hand. Honey, it's your servant. She's your property. You're the one that wanted to bring her from Egypt. She's not my servant. It's his wife. Do as her, do with her, whatever you think is best. And now very sad words, showing the emotional duress, the spiritual breakdown, the overwhelming angst of the whole situation, and then Sarai mistreated Hagar so that she fled from her. I don't know who to pity the most in this story. The man of promise who caved in and capitulated to his own flesh and weakness, his pitiful wife whose biological clock had ticked beyond ticking, and she was just trying to do what she thought was right, and didn't have the leadership and the protection and the stamina from a husband to stop her from nonsense? Or this pitiful servant girl, Hagar? We don't have time to read the rest of the story. We'll pick it up next week. Let's make some application. We know that Hagar ends out. There are two words, basically, that characterize the rest of the story. Number one is this angel of the Lord appears to Hagar out in the desert. She's evidently heading towards Egypt. And he tells her to go back and submit. Humility, word number one for the rest of the chapter, and hostility, because from then on, we've got Ishmael involved in the picture, and he's a wild donkey of a man. We'll talk more about Ishmael and his descendants in the days ahead. For today, you need to understand that this is essentially the Arabs, particularly the Palestinians, for one thing, and even to this day, nobody wants them. They're half Jew, half Arab, and nobody wants them. They don't have a land and there's nothing but fighting going on in political chaos. And I'll tell you something. You wonder where they came from? Here's where they came from right here.
They sprang from Abram's loins out of the will of God. How do we apply now as we shut down? I think there's a couple things from this important passage. I don't know how it struck you in the few minutes. I've, of course, been meditating all week on this passage and studying, reading. But obviously a a theme of this passage is summed up in the word waiting. Abram and Sarai got tired of waiting on God, didn't they? Oh, man. Come to the pastor's study now if you want modern-day application. And many a tear has stained the oak desk because they stopped waiting on God and decided to work their own plan. God, you've forgotten me. You know, I don't understand it all, and I don't understand why the Lord does a lot of what he does. On the phone yesterday afternoon with one of my best friends, Greg Alderman, who very shortly is joining us here on pastoral work in the panhandle, taking the pastorate of Central Chapel uh, the the last Sunday of this month. And I've been staying in touch with him as he's resigning from an 18-year ministry at Abingdon Bible Church in Virginia. And he said, this weekend, the attention's not on us, though, leaving. He said, we have grief upon grief in our church. Have you heard in the news the two young people at Virginia Tech that were slaughtered mercilessly and murdered? It was off campus, but it just happened first part of this week. One of those girls grew up at Abingdon Bible Church, lives in Lexington. Her father's a state police helicopter pilot. She was brutally murdered and abused. And I've been thinking, why did the Lord allow that? Why does the Lord allow sin and the decision-making of scum like that impact His people? I don't really have an answer. I just know that God doesn't control us to the degree that we takes away choices, does He? And I do know that God uses these things to break us, doesn't He? Have you ever noticed that God never uses anybody without breaking them? Why does He do that? And it occurred to me that there are two tools that God uses to break people. Number one is suffering. And number two is waiting. I think there are two key tools in God's tool belt that he puts to work in us to make us and conform us to the image of Christ and to drive us to our knees and to beat pride out of us because aren't we so proud and arrogant and selfish, foolish? And he knows that our hearts are so hard and so sin-prone and so difficult that if we don't get beat down or... Learn to wait upon Him. Psalm 37, 7. You ought to mark that verse down. Psalm 37, 7. Be still and wait patiently for the Lord. Lord, I want to tell you something. Don't mess with my family and don't make me wait. You know those feelings? I hate to wait. I'll do anything to avoid a line at Walmart and a line at the U.S. Postal Service. Can't stand it. Drives me off the edge. One clerk there waiting in line. (sighs) You talk about your pastor turning ugly and nasty and ungodly, coming this close to having to resign his position. Why? (laughs) Because I have to wait on somebody. 
I have quit going to sheets because I literally cannot stand to wait behind somebody who's buying lotto tickets. It drives me, drives me crazy, and the clerk's taking care of them forever. And all I need to do is leave a $20 bill, and I can walk out. Yeah. You say, Pastor Van, you got some spiritual issues. You're right. <laughs> Number one, God often asks us to wait. God often asks us to wait, and very few things are more difficult and frustrating spiritually. Listen, you need to get Psalm 37.7 slapped on your mirror in the morning. And we'll understand that God is at work in our lives when He calls us to wait. How many people have heartache and brokenness because they've stopped waiting on God? Number two, husbands. Husbands, it is very important for us to listen to our wives. I do not want to draw the application out of this passage that a husband should not listen to his wife. Some of the best counsel I ever received is from my wife. And I thank God for her. But it is more important that we be the spiritual leaders of our home. It is very important, number two application today. Number one, wait on God. Number two, husbands, listen to your wives. But more important than that, you better lead your wife spiritually. And this whole passage is part of an issue of spiritual passivity on the part of Abram not taking leadership. I want to tell you something else. Wives especially, listen to me. We're, we're out of here. Emotional and spiritual meltdown times are never the time to try to influence your husband to make a major decision. In times of emotional and spiritual meltdown, wives, do not go after your husband to try to make a major decision. Those are times to be still and to wait until you know you're in your right mind. That's not a slam in any way. Men, the same thing applies. Finally, and we'll pick this up next week more, there are some sins, there are some sins that can never be undone this side of heaven. And so we throw ourselves on the grace of God, don't we? Some of us look back and we know there's been things that have happened and done that we cannot undo. And they will never be undone. But God in His grace, His will, His perfect, pleasing, good will begins brand new right now for me by His grace. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we humble our hearts before You. We see ourselves so much in this family. And Lord, our prayer this morning is that we would live with short accounts before you, that we would walk in godliness, and that there would be nothing between our soul and you, our Savior. So do your work in our lives. Give us a, a spiritual stamina. Give us a determination to wait upon you no matter what. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.